Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 24 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 24, we are going to be talking about a few different things. We're going to start with some announcements about the upcoming uh, Bible Quiz Meet at uh, EBC, East Ridge uh, Baptist uh, Church in Kent. And it's coming up not very long from now. We're going to be reviewing John chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the relationship between Quizmasters, Answer Judge, answer judges and scorekeepers and the different responsibilities and how the authority and the purpose of each role happen to be and how they work together in a quiz meet and both before and after a quiz meet too. We've got a handful of quiz mastery things, including some miscellaneous questions that came up from our last quiz meet. We're going to be talking about how funding of Bible quizzing happens. And specifically, we're going to be talking about how the uh, CMA P&W program uh, works in terms of how funding levels work. And then talk a little bit about some of the costs as well, because, you know, there there are a lot of costs involved that, uh, you know, maybe we're not necessarily seeing a lot. So we want to kind of expose that and talk a little bit about that. And then we also have a couple of questions and uh, that came into our email address and uh, a suggestion uh, in the form of a question, I suppose, that also came into the email address. So we're going to cover those as well. And that email address, as uh, routine listeners of the show know, is iq at cbqz.org. And we very much would like to hear from you if you have questions, comments, concerns, nagging doubts, fears, paranoia, anything about quizzing, anything about not quizzing. Uh, feel free to send us an email. Um, you know, I don't know about Scott, but I'm lonely and I like reading emails. So uh, send us an email. Just say hi uh, at iq at cbqz.org and we would love to hear from you. And if you've got a question or a comment and we like it, um, or even if we don't like it, even if we disagree, we would uh, love to feature it on one of the future episodes. All right. So with that, we're going to move into announcements. And uh, let's see. So, uh, Scott, we've got a uh, quiz meet coming up here at EDC Eastridge Baptist Church in Kent on October 12th. So it's less than two weeks away. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Uh, only 11 days away. Our first real quiz meet of the year. And it'll be fun to get everyone together and quiz. We've got a few updates about that meet. There's going to be no lunch provided at the church, so plan to bring a lunch or go out for lunch on Saturday. And other than that, we should have a pretty normal meet. The structure and format of the meet is just as we've always had it. I think we'll have about 25 teams at the meet, and I'm really looking forward to kicking the year off. Very cool. Very cool. Anything specific about the meet that you wanted to talk about? I mean, I know on Saturday... Uh, this is more for the uh, sort of team leaders or church leaders, uh, program leaders. Uh, we want to try to touch base with you uh, during, uh, well, just after worship, during the message, right before quizzing starts Saturday morning, uh, just for a couple of quick little check-in announcements and, and to actually uh, to ask you a couple of uh, key questions for the year. But uh, beyond that, is there anything else folks need to know about? I don't think so. Just that meeting... Because lunch is not provided at the church, we won't have our lunchtime leadership meeting. But other than that, I think everything should be pretty normal. We're not using quiz benches because I don't think they're fixed. So our next meet host, which is ABC, does not have to be prepared to take them. I can't think of any other announcements I really have. Pretty cool. And we're going to have four rooms. Is that right? Yep. Four rooms, six prelims, and then the normal after prelims brackets. Very cool. My understanding at this point is that we will have uh, five quiz masters, so that will be fantastic. We'll be able to have somebody uh, ro uh, rotating rooms and giving people breaks and so forth. So that'll be a, a fantastic situation to be involved in. And as we mentioned before, if anybody is interested in looking at becoming a quiz master or an answer judge or a scorekeeper or kind of working your way through that process, we would very much like to hear from you. You can uh, contact Scott directly or myself directly or send a, an email to the show at iq at cbqz.org. And we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, I promise that we will do whatever we can to uh, make your life easy in that transition, to train you, to equip you. Uh, and you know, it's, it, it truly is a lot of fun and it's not like you're going to be signing up for a huge burdensome task. 
the idea is, uh, you know, many hands make light work. Uh, we definitely want to have a growing larger pool of officials so that uh, folks can take breaks from time to time. Uh, and enjoy the quizzing process. Uh, I know I, I certainly enjoy qu uh, quizzing as a quiz master and being involved in the process as a quiz master, but it's a lot of fun also to be able to roam around and sit in at random and be an answer judge somewhere. And it's, it's fun to uh, see other rooms uh, as well. Yeah, I did not think about that luxury of five quiz masters and only four quiz rooms, but um, I will definitely have a lot of fun having a break or two throughout the quiz meet. Yeah, it'll be awesome. All right. Well, with that being said, let's uh, move on into our chapter review. We are a little bit behind schedule on our chapter reviews. Uh, I think we ended up missing a, a podcast uh, episode along the way, but here we are right now into chapter three. Uh, so, Scott, what are sort of your ideas that you see out of chapter three? Let's take a look. I always start with chapter length. So 36 verses in this chapter looks like we've got two paragraphs and um first one is 21 verses and the next one is the remaining that would be 15 verses key verses there's one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen twenty of the 36 verses are key definitely something to take note of and looks like we have a couple different varieties of key verses there's a couple quote only's um how oh, interesting. Oh, I see exactly why they have to be quote-onlys, because they can't be even finished this is. Because um, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you. Very truly I tell you. Um, it must be that elsewhere in the material there are verses that start the same way, which often happens with the very truly I tell you or I tell you the truth types of phrases that Jesus repeated often. We've got some key verse pairs in here, 14 and 15, 20 and 21. Um, so, so if you hear a quote, these two verses and you hear John chapter three verses, you just need a mouth shape after verses because it'll either be 20 or 14 and you can know it right at that point. I don't see any finished. This is in this chapter, but it looks like it's got a, it's got a good length for narrative material. 36 verses is not a very long chapter and it, it has a good mix of unique materials kind of spread through it. I've got, I see Unique words throughout the whole chapter and chapter unique words throughout the whole chapter and um, unique phrases as well. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's a pretty well-rounded chapter overall. Yeah, that was my that was sort of my first reaction, kind of glancing through everything. It seemed like a beautiful middle of the road chapter, right? It's it's not particularly it's, it's, it's a Goldilocks chapter, right? It's not particularly too long, not particularly too short. There are a very healthy number of key verses. I mean, it's probably a little key verse heavy, uh, I suppose, relative to maybe some other years or, you know, other other books of, of the material and so forth. But it's not overly so. And there's definitely a couple of, of areas, like you were saying, uh, 314 uh, versus 320 and so forth, 320 and 321 in terms of uh, getting on a, a mouth shape and jumping a little early there. Uh, there's... Some key, or sorry, not key. There's some unique words uh, scattered throughout the material, but there's there's not a ton. It's not. It doesn't sort of strike me. And this is all very subjective. Me subjectively looking at it, you know, versus analyzing it with with real stats or anything. But it feels not particularly too cluttered with unique words. So, but not terribly sparse either. So be on the lookout for some of those. Don't be, don't let some of those sneak up with you. 325 is one where, you know, a, an argument developed between, argument developed between those three words are all unique, uh, or are each unique. Uh, so things to watch out for there. But generally speaking, it's sort of this beautiful sort of middle of the road chapter. And sort of in my experience, the middle of the road chapters tend to be the ones that actually have a lot of no jumps on them uh, because they, they sort of don't draw our attention necessarily when we're studying or so forth. So, you know, maybe put a little extra attention on John chapter three and you might be able to pick up a couple of no jumps uh, during the quiz meet. Yeah, verse 25, developed being a unique word, you know that what developed is going to start an interrogative question. And so if you make a little bit of a mistake and jump too fast, but you hear what de de um just kind of 
tuck this away in your head that what developed is going to be a likely question. I always liked to look at potential interrogative questions that started with the interrogative word, so like who or what, but where that had uh, a unique word as the second syllable um, of the question, and especially at the ones where what was the interrogative word, because there are way fewer what interrogatives than who interrogatives. So there may, you know, be 50 good what interrogative questions in the material, and there might be only a couple where there's a unique word as the second word after the interrogative word what. And so I would just file this away, um, and you can you might end up jumping on it and getting a very impressive, correct question that is actually the result of good studying. Yes, indeed. You know, there are some quizzers out there who are writing questions as a, uh, as a, as a practice tool. Uh, I think that's fantastic. I wouldn't use it as your primary means to memorize, but after you've memorized the material or in the process of memorizing the material, if you want to maybe not necessarily write a ton of questions, but write a handful for each chapter, it kind of helps evoke a different way of looking at the material and helps sort of solidify some learning involved in the process. But looking at verse 25, since, you know, Scott was just looking at verse 25, something that jumps out at me as a very, very obvious, very standard, very easy interrogative question would be matter of what? Matter of ceremonial washing. And that first syllable, mat, M-A-T, uh, in and of itself is key. You don't even need necessarily the full, the full word, because if you look at, like, if you do a search in the material for just M-A-T, uh, you'll see a handful of things like, you know, five, eight, uh, uh, pick up your mat and walk, right? Uh, five, nine, mat and walked, uh, past tense, uh, carry your mat on five, ten, and so forth. There's mats that show up here. But then like, uh, 841, illegitimate. Oh, of course, I'm mis- horribly mispronouncing it. But anyway, the, the, the letters MAT show up, but that wouldn't be pronounced that, that same way. Really, when you're talking about like if it's an interrogative and you start with Matt, that's that in and of itself is enough to get you to 325 and be able to answer the the answer to the question. So if you're looking for some of those, there's are there's opportunities where you know a few of these questions you can jump very very quickly, single syllable jumping uh, on interrogatives, standard interrogatives, and you'll be able to nail it. Absolutely. Now, a little bit of a style question, style point there. When I'm writing a question, I try to make it flow as much as possible. So I would write uh, matter of ceremonial washing, the matter of ceremonial washing. I would write the matter of what? Um, because you don't say, um, is grocery store open today? You say, is the grocery store open today? Or do you want to go to grocery store? Do you want to go to the grocery store? And I definitely see question writers who will just start the question on the unique word um, because of this belief that by making a question key quickly, it is beneficial to the quizzers. And I take um, not not a converse view, but a differing view where I just try to write questions that flow well, the way we speak English to each other. And it's up to the quizzers to decide based on the material, how well I know it, and other variables, do I want to jump at two syllables or at nine syllables or uh, what have you, and not not expect that everything is going to be very easy to locate in the material very quickly. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and in fact, the yeah, I would even might write my question, the matter of what, uh, for exactly those reasons. Uh, and I, I think it kind of leads itself to, if we write questions that way, it will lend itself to a variety of, of not urgency, but a variety of when a question becomes key enough to answer. And I think that variety, that richness of diversity of question uniqueness or when it becomes key enough to answer is actually healthy uh, for the program and healthy for quizzers. Uh, so it, it, it causes us to refrain from purely jumping on syllable counts, but actually uh, having a little bit additional calculus in, in how fast we jump. Absolutely. I think that variance forces quizzers to both memorize the material well, but also be very thoughtful about the speed that they need to jump on based off of how well they do know the material. And if they just know that they can jump at two syllables or one and a half syllables, um, it kind of simplifies things a lot. Whereas if, let's say, the you know, I think in general within the district, a really good spot to jump on interrogatives is right about four syllables. Now, the international's level, it's right about two and a half syllables. And that's assuming 
um, this diverse set of questions. Well, if you're jumping at four syllables in the district, maybe you think you know the material awesome, and you can jump at three and a half or between three and a half and four, and then you have this little bit of um, an advantage when, what's that, a half syllable out of four, you're jumping at just over 10% faster. Well, if you're at two syllables jumping a half syllable faster, you're jumping a full 25% faster, um, and it's just, it's the math is a little bit different, and I like the diversity that in, that enables people to jump a very small difference from somebody else, but gain a big advantage if they have studied the material well. But it rewards the people who do the work, both of memorizing and knowing where those little lines are in between four syllables and five. Or like it could be the difference between four and five syllables as far as how many you get right is the same as the difference between 3.75 and four syllables. But you have to know the material and deal with it and work with it to have any idea if that's true or not. Right. Absolutely. I've got other thoughts on the material. Yeah. Um, just some kind of ways that I read through it. Because I like to familiarize myself with the material the first time I read it without this pressure of memorizing it and without this pressure of super retention. And so I just kind of start reading through it. Of course, I'm looking for those unique words. But I also look for proper proper nouns or, or people because people really stick out in our head, I think, almost more than concepts. And so I see, oh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Oh, and then he talks to Jesus and calls Jesus rabbi. Uh, Jesus talks about Nicodemus, um, um, mother's womb, talking about a mother there. And then we keep going, Israel's teacher. And I just kind of familiarize myself. With, oh, the snake, right? There's and Moses. And those proper nouns are often the basis for questions, right? Just as Moses lifted up what? Or, um, yeah, who asked? Surely they cannot enter a second time to their mother's womb to be born. And so it, I, I find it just really helpful to familiarize myself with those names. They're kind of good signposts as I'm learning the material. And then I had a few other things. Like in verses 20 and 21, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light. Well, there are other places in John that are very memorable where we're talking about the light. And because of that, it may be very easy to confuse those passages. And so I often spend extra time on these passages that have similarities to other passages so that I'm never tripped up by it. And it can be difficult work. But I, I really thrived on the difficult work because it felt like the and the easiest way for me to gain an advantage over over other quizzers because of that element of difficulty that might put someone off or maybe they don't think about it and then it trips them up when they're quoting it. A couple other thoughts. In verse 23, now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Now Anon and Salim are both unique words and they both could potentially be pronounced other than what I just how I just pronounce them. And it's helpful when you're reading through the material to say, what are the most common ways that I expect this this word to be pronounced? Because often there's not a one absolutely correct way to pronounce a word. But also just familiarize yourself with it so that when if you're quoting quoting it back, you know how you're going to say it yourself. You're not required to to say um a word like um a name or a place like this in some correct way. Like there's no definition of correct, but it just has to be understandable as the answer. And so I don't know if there's another place in the material that is spelled or might be pronounced anything similar to Anon, but if there's not, then Anon or Aenon or Ainon, all of those would probably be accepted by the quiz master as long as they're like, oh yeah, you're talking about this word. Um, and I just want to Encourage quizzers to have an idea of how you're going to pronounce something, but also not be super paranoid about pronouncing it correctly because there's not this standard of correct that you have to hit. You just have to be understood as what you're trying to say. And this is where I would recommend when you're memorizing to use as many different forms of, of dealing with, a, with, with the content as possible. So, you know, in other words, uh, don't just read the material and say it to yourself in your head, but actually go through the process of speaking it. Uh, there are times where I, I don't know about you, Scott, but for me, where if I'm reading a particular piece of material, but I'm not speaking it, I can pass through some difficult words and my brain just goes like, oh, yeah, I know those words. But if I actually say them out loud, 
uh, sort of my tongue gets a little bit twisted up and I don't, I don't say them as clearly as I want to, that can kind of distract me. So both listening to the material, if you have it on audio, uh, tape or CD or, 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 uh, MP3 or something like that, uh, it's great to listen through the material and then to read it and to then speak it and hear yourself speaking it. I think all of those things are, are wonderful tools to be able to get more and more comfortable with the material. Absolutely. And I had a hopefully final, but potentially interesting thought. And that's because 20 of these 36 verses are key. If you're a key verse quizzer who's just memorizing the key verses, this is kind of a perfect chapter to say, hey, why don't I just memorize the additional 16 verses and not maybe the additional 60 verses in the material in a given chapter, but another 16 verses and then take a shot at chapter verse reference and chapter reference questions. Um, I think it it's kind of the lowest possible step from being a key verse quizzer into a full material quizzer. You kind of get a bite-sized taste of knowing a full chapter with references and just kind of see how you like it. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in this chapter in particular, like I said, because it is so average, I think there's going to be a fair number of no jumps. So if you've got a CVR or a CR, uh, or even just an interrogative from one of the non-key verse questions out of chapter three, I think if you're memorizing the whole material, you'll do yourself a huge favor. So that's our chapter review. Should we hit our next agenda topic, Griffin? Yeah, go for it. So I had an interesting question. It wasn't really a question. Well, it kind of was a question to me, but just point for discussion. So there's an officials table. And let's just talk about our, our fully um, populated officials table of quizmaster, answer judge, and scorekeeper. And so they all have different roles, right? The quizmaster is asking the questions. The answer judge is kind of the, the checker of everything. They're checking that questions as asked are valid. Um, they're kind of tracking what the quizzer says in case the quizmaster misses a word. And then they're helping out on rulings. And if there is kind of some split decision at the official's table, the, the answer judge has the authority to make the final ruling um, and the responsibility, in fact. And then there's also the scorekeeper who is keeping score, but who can, can assign fouls just like the quizmaster and answer judge and can take part in protests. And so there's a lot of responsibility given to each of the officials, um, and that responsibility is overlapping to other parts, to other um, officials at the table. And the question that I was posed is, like, let's say you're a quiz master and an answer judge or a scorekeeper awards a foul. Usually you don't um, talk amongst yourselves before awarding a foul, because fouls usually aren't super big deals. But if you're the quiz master or a different official for that matter, and you think that it really shouldn't have been awarded, do you then like very quickly say like, oh, actually we should discuss this? Um, like how quote unquote bad do you think the f awarding of a foul is before you have that discussion? And this isn't so much of like publicly usurping the authority of another official. It's just um, you definitely want to be on the same page and you want to feel the responsibility and the ability to just make a ruling if you think it's right. But at what point do you kind of walk it back? Um, and also, like, let's say the quiz master makes a ruling. And as the answer judge, you know, do you kind of jump in there? Um, I don't know. I don't know how well I conveyed this. But it's just kind of how do the three officials interact if um, a ruling or a foul has been awarded that you aren't fully on board with? You know, how do you discuss it or treat those situations. Yeah. I mean, that's a very fascinating topic. I mean, in terms of fouls, I can't remember a time where my answer judge or scorekeeper has ever awarded a foul. Um, I, I think I, I don't remember how many fouls I've awarded in, in, but in my entire time as being a quiz master, I think it's less than 10. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't been a ton and it's been usually things like, uh, technical fouls, not anything intentional, like, like some, somebody's light went off, uh, unintentionally before I called a question or something like that. You know, they're, they're technical fouls rather than, you know, somebody's behavioral, uh, sort of things. Uh, I, I think that's a reflection of how great our district is in terms of how great our quizzers are and, and also the coaches because the coaches are preparing the, the quizzers for that competition in a professional and sportsmanlike way. But I have had a situation where, uh, my answer judge has, uh, warned the teams about, or I, I guess he was an answer judge slash scorekeeper, uh, but he warned the teams 
uh, of a particular uh, behavior, basically talking amongst themselves during a question, uh, this 30 seconds of a question. He said, you guys need to not do that. If, if I see you guys doing that, I have to call a foul on it. And I really appreciated him saying that for two reasons. Um, first of all, when a question is being asked, the last place I'm looking is at the quizzers who are seated on the platform. Like my eyes don't go there. My ears don't go there. My, my entire being is focused on the question and the answer that's in front of me and listening to what the quizzer is saying and putting what they're saying or, or ref, uh, referencing what they're saying in reference to either the material that I'm looking up or the question or whatever. And so unless somebody who's sitting on the platform is you know, really, really obnoxiously loud, I am never going to notice it ever. And so my answer judge kind of stepping up and saying, guys, you need to not talk during the 30 seconds. Uh, I really appreciate it because for two, like I said, two different reasons. Number one, I'm never going to see it anyway, even if they do it. And so I, I was very appreciative that the answer judge saw it and, and said, you guys need to stop. But then also the way that was handled was, was incredibly appropriate. Instead of just issuing a foul, uh, saying, you know, recognizing, having the discernment to recognize Yes, the talking was going on. The talking did not seem to interfere with with either the progress of the quiz, the ruling of the quiz, the scores of the quiz. So we do need to stop the talking, but we there isn't a reason to just throw out a foul like right now kind of stuff to give kind of a warning ahead of time. I thought that was handled very appropriately. Had my answer judge just thrown out a foul, I think I would have been completely okay with it. I think I would have been sad that it had to have happened. But I think he would have been in the right, and I think I would have just been like, okay, cool. Now, if he had thrown out a foul that I disagreed with, I think my reaction as a, as a quiz master, I could have just said, no, it's not a foul, we're just going to keep going. But I wouldn't have done that. I think I would have said something like, give us just a second. I, I would turn to my answer judge, privately talk about it a little bit, and then I would explain, you know, if, if we came to a consensus, then I, w- I would explain, okay, well, we're, we're, we're going to rescind the foul, here's, what, here's the situation, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Very similarly, I think, from my perspective, I, as a quiz master, um, there have been more than once, um, I don't know exactly how many times, but I, it's been more than once where I've ruled on something, felt fairly confident in my ruling, and an answer judge will lean over and said, oh, she didn't say this word or something like that. And, and, and it's one of those things where in my room, I don't have a recording that I can go back to and verify. Uh, and I, you know, as I'm, as I'm, you know, especially somebody who is a key verse, uh, question specialist and is, you know, jumping on a quote these two verses and they're very, big verses and she quotes them incredibly incredibly fast like my eyes can't follow the words as fast as she's quoting kind of stuff it's very easy for me to skip over a word and just be like oh wait did she say that like i think she said it and my mind will fill that word in my answer judge can lean over and say she didn't actually say that word or something like that i very much appreciate that because then i can say like okay no my answer judge is saying this and i will defer to the judgment of the answer judge on those cases i know that ultimately at the district level the quiz master has the ultimate authority to make you know, make a decision, but I tend to defer a lot for, you know, quoting the stuff to the answer judges. Very, very helpful. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's sort of my sort of thing. And in terms of, you know, communications, we tend to do it, uh, privately and confidentially. We, we might take a little time, a few seconds to talk to each other. Um, I like scorekeepers who are listening, even though, even if they're not ready necessarily in their, quizzing mastery necessarily to take on the role of being an answer judge. I really love to encourage scorekeepers to listen and as best they can follow along with the proceeding and then comment. I I might turn to a a scorekeeper and say, did you hear them say this or this other thing? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, And it's very helpful to me, even if it's a, you know, a first time person at a meet, if they're paying attention, they can offer sort of a secondary opinion. I may not necessarily put as much weight into their their opinions about things as like a, a fully qualified answer judge, but I really appreciate having uh, somebody somebody else's point of view that I can sort of check and balance my point of view against uh, in in certain very difficult calls. So anyway, that's just me. But uh, Scott, what do you think? Um, no, I, I I agree with all your thoughts, Griffin. Um, I was just reading the rule book now, and 
There is something that I guess I kind of do the opposite of, but it says that the answer judge is the spokesperson for the group, and the spokesperson shall announce decisions. Um, but I kind of announce all decisions, but I, I think I adhere to the spirit of it. So the answer judge can overrule the quiz master, but I don't view this as an adversarial thing. Um, and I can recall one time where the answer judge and I really did thought like that a different ruling should happen from each other. But I always announce them myself because I feel like it provides the best continuity. And if I'm in, in that one case, I didn't announce it like, well, the quiz, the answer judge disagrees with me and they have authority. So here's what the ruling is. No, like I announced it as the table's ruling because no one needs to like know what the process was. And it, it can only be a negative if you imply that there's some unresolved <laughs> disagreement between officials at the table. But, like, when I've been a quiz master or an answer judge for a meet like Great West or Internationals, I would make sure to chat with my other official and say, do you want me to verify with you before every ruling that I make? Or, you know, do we both feel comfortable kind of knowing if the correct or incorrect um, ruling is maybe in question and then we'll kind of give each other a look? But if, you know, we're convinced that it's clear, just go ahead and rule on it and just kind of set those ground rules ahead of time. Because at the end of the day, we want the best ruling to happen, doesn't matter by who, um, and you want it to happen as quickly as possible and explained well. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the rule book, my understanding was that the answer judge is the ultimate authority, like the, the head authority in terms of, say, Great West and internationals. But at the district level, uh, traditionally, it's the quiz master. Is that, uh, is that not explicit anywhere? So this is one part of the rulebook that is kind of ambiguous. So under answer judges, point one, it says there shall be at least one answer judge um, in addition to the quiz master in every international final in a local zone or district quiz. This number may vary. Point two, all conferring among quiz master and answer judges shall be done privately. The spokesperson will announce the decision. The head answer judge shall be the spokesperson for the group. So in point one, it talks about for every international final. And I always read that as just referring to the at least one answer judge um, requirement. But then going on to number two, it was not talking specifically and solely about the international final, but just about quizzing in general. And then that one, it does say the spokesperson will announce the decision. The head answer judge shall be the spokesperson. Now you could say that the inclusion of the word head answer judge implies that there could be more than one, which really would only happen at internationals. So, I mean, I think this is one thing that districts might do different things, but I, I can't, I don't ever hear of anyone ever having a problem with it. <laughs> however, it's been done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think, I don't think I've ever, I, I can't, I've never been in a situation where my answer judge and I couldn't come to an agreement. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where a quiz master and an answer judge couldn't come to an, agree uh, an, an agreement. Like we may, we may both be really unsure for a very long time and then, then come to an agreement, but uh, it, it's rare. I, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where that we couldn't figure out like, Oh yeah, one of us is right. And one of us is wrong. And then just go with that. Um, it's just, I think it's been one of those things and maybe this is from, you know, 15 years ago or something. I just, for some reason, I've got it stuck in my head that it was like at the district level, even if you had an answer judge that the quiz master ultimately trumped the answer judge, if there ever was a disagreement. Um, and I'm not sure where I got that from. Um, I think that's certainly been our practice. I mean, just because the quiz master at, at district levels anyway, the quiz master basically just says everything the answer judge very rarely actually says anything um but uh i don't know um maybe i've got it wrong yeah it, it could be that it was that way at some point in time and i, I really can't remember our reasoning for re leaving the wording that the answer judge is um actually i just talked about conferring and spokesperson um i actually don't think there's anything in here about authority or trump card or anything of that nature and I think the reason that it's not a problem is most stuff and your quiz masters are your most um, experienced participants in quizzing and the ones who know the rule book the best and all that stuff. Um, and so most of the time you're not going to have an answer judge that knows the rule book better than the quiz master and is more experienced um, and will like stick, stick their nose in in a good way to like stand for a certain ruling. 
Um, and so most often, unless they're super confident about it, they're not going to jump in. And the one time where I had a disagreement, it was an answer judge that knew what they were doing, had solid reasoning, and it was just one of those judgment calls that we differed about how we were going to go on the judgment. And so in that scenario, I went with the answer judge. But upon peeking at answer judges here in the rulebook, I, I, I guess I don't see um, any sort of authority or hierarchy. All right, cool. Well, anything else you want to hit on this topic? I don't think so. I think it was just kind of a – it was a fun question posed to me that I, I really hadn't thought about. Uh, I think it does happen rarely, but you want to have um, good official – good relationships among the officials at the table and that they're all on the same page and working together. All right. Very cool. Well, uh, we had a couple of quiz mastery related questions, uh, could be answer judgy related questions as well, depending on your point of view. Uh, so Scott, why don't you uh, kick us off? All right. So this first one was from John one thirty six, chapter one, verse 36. And it's a chapter reference question. And the question is, he saw what? And the answer as written was Jesus passing by. So the verse reads, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And this one was marked by Quiz Master with the very short message because they are under a time crunch when they are putting in the, these little edits. Hard to rule on. And I can see why. So he saw what. You kind of, because you're using the interrogative word what, you need this whole kind of phrase, Jesus passing by. But it would it could be very easy for a quiz, quizzer to provide the reference question, he saw whom. In which case, the answer is probably limited to Jesus. Um, and you might have to call the quizzer incorrect in that situation, which you probably, which I wouldn't feel great about. And so it's just kind of, um, I don't know, sometimes the, the interrogative word what can be used to catch or to include a lot of material that may not be the most clear. Do you have any thoughts, Griffin, about this? And we'll ignore, we'll ignore the fact that the verse starts with when, because that's actually what we're going to be talking about next. <laughs> okay, there, there we go. It's my turn to be on mute. Um, all right, I'm back. <clears throat> So yeah, I, I had similar feelings about this as well. I, I can see the argument that it is a little bit difficult to rule on to some degree. But that being said, uh, it, I, I think it's valid as written. Um, but so, so he, he saw whom as one example. Certainly the answer is Jesus and that's it. He saw what? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of, in, I'm trying to envision what the ruling was in the room with the quiz master who marked this for edit. Um, so was it that, uh, the person answered Jesus and stopped and didn't get the keyword or that I keep saying keyword. It's unique. Um, anyway, so it was it that he, that he said, uh, said chapter reference, he saw what Jesus, or maybe he saw, and then somebody jumped and answered Jesus, didn't get the word passing, uh, which is unique, therefore required, and then challenged to say, well, uh, you know, he saw who, or he saw what could just be answered by Jesus and doesn't require the end of it. Um, maybe that's where some of the ambiguity comes in. I don't know that I would agree that what does clearly seem to me to need to include passing by, uh, not necessarily the he said part, um, or the, this, the, the clause that comes thereafter. Uh, but so maybe that was going on there, but yeah, I think it's a pretty straightforward question, at least for, from my perspective, a little bit awkward, uh, but I'd be cool with it. I'm guessing that your guesses on what, what happened is pretty close. So I wouldn't be surprised if the quiz master read the whole question. According to John chapter one, he saw what, and then the quizzer answered something like just Jesus and didn't get the rest of it. And then maybe were confused about what more they had to, to answer. Um, and to be fair, the quiz master did say hard to rule on and didn't say invalid. And I love it when quiz masters have an eye out for questions that could be less than good, even if they are valid, because I'm always looking to improve those things. But here we can see a really nice feature of CBQZ because it includes the initials of the quiz master, of the user who, who, um, marked this for edit. In this case, it's GS, which I would assume would be you, Griffin, but because you weren't the one, it might have been somebody else. But, um, this is, might be something we want to follow up on to, to find out which Quizmaster it was and what the exact situation was um, to find out if we do want to keep this question in our set or not. Yeah, I have a feeling I actually know which Quizmaster it was because one of the Quizmasters had to log into CBQZ as me to get it to work. Um, and so I'm not going to I'm not going to embarrass the Quizmaster <laughs> in in the podcast, but I, I think I actually know who it is. 
Yep, and so we can follow up and have a good discussion about it, which is awesome. So the next one is also a chapter reference, and it's according to John chapter 2. It is in verse 13, but this is a chapter-only reference. And the question is, it was almost time for what? And the answer is the Jewish Passover. And if you look at the verse, it reads, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. And the message provided by the quizmaster was, awkward place to start. Now, and so I kind of want to talk about this construct of questions. So I do this a lot with reference questions where I just see a phrase like he was. He was under the earth or he was um, in Galilee. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect type of it construct for a chapter verse reference. It's, ex- it's expected. It's clear. It tests a little bit of the material. Um, and sometimes I'll ignore that it's part of a clause that begins with most often the word when. And sometimes when you just kind of jump in at the he was or the, you know, your reference phrase, you kind of lose some meaning and it is an awkward place to start, which when you're in the tunnel, when you're in tunnel vision writing reference questions, um, you can kind of miss some of the context. But then when you're asking it as a quiz master and you have a quizzer answering it, you're like, hey, this is a little bit weird where it was decided to start. And then in this case, if the quizzer says when it was almost time for what? Are they wrong? You know, if it's the same type, even are they wrong? Or that would be a shame if adding the when um, made it an interrogative because of maybe a three-word key phrase. And so I'm kind of asking your thoughts, Griffin, about this construct of reference questions, most often by cutting off the word when from a clause, but it's often at the end of a sentence or a verse, and you kind of just jump in because you see this really common reference phrase. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it at all. Um, I think it reads reasonably well. Um, I can see the argument for adding when. So I, I am, I'll, 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 you know, total transparency here. I'm not a big fan of this question, but for completely not the reasons that we've talked about so far. So like, I'll, I'll say all of the reasons that, that, that we've talked about so far to me are totally fine to, to have the question. So, you know, starting on the word it, uh, you know, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. The answer, I could see even adding the when, uh, when it was almost time for what, uh, works for me just fine. Uh, it is a little bit weird to have an interrogative on, you know, sounding wise on both ends of, of the, of the question, but it, I think it's completely fine. Uh, and do I prefer one versus the other? I don't, I don't really think I do. Um, I, I think they're basically equivalent. I think it's just maybe, you know, adding or dropping the win would be sort of, you would want to do it to exercise the best kind of question that you can out of the material. But I think the two are probably equivalent in my mind, at least. Um, but I'm not a fan of this question because the exact same thing happens in John chapter 11. And I know this is a chapter reference question and it is completely valid because uh, you know, when it was almost time for what, or it was almost time for what, you know, can happen out of chapter two or chapter 11. They're both completely valid, but this screams, uh, cross-reference question, uh, you know, Cuddy, the, the spirit of Cuddy is, 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 uh, jumping up and down with great glee right now. Um, but it's, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a fan of questions like this where it's like, Okay, yeah, it's from chapter two, but it can also be from chapter 11. I can't really tell you why, because it's completely valid as a chapter reference question, but I just, I, I don't know. I kind of get uncomfortable. I can, with it. I can tell you exactly why. Oh, okay. So why? I would totally write this question as a chapter reference question from John two and John 11, but my question would be when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, what? And so I think your uncomfortability with it is as it's currently written, it was almost time for what? The Jewish Passover. This tests nothing, and reference questions are designed to test something, right? It's um, multiple occurrences of the same phrase, but if the answers aren't different, then you're not forcing the quizzer to actually know which one they're dealing with. And so sometimes you see in, in verse 1, it says four days, and in verse 2, it says eight days. And I will write that reference question, like, what days, um, all the time. And it might seem really tough because the quizzer has to know it's four and, you know, maybe only mere words away, it's eight days. But to me, that's the essence of reference questions. Do you know the very precise part of the material that you're in if you are provided with that precise reference? 
And so in this case, you're provided with a precise chapter, but the way the question is written does not require you to actually know that you are in that precise chapter. You can merely hear when it was almost time um, or it, it was almost time. And you're like, hey, I know what it was almost time for. And you may not know if you're in John 2 or John 11 because it doesn't matter. And so, you know, a phrase like the word of God appears a lot in the Bible. But I will not write the word of whom or what word is a reference question if that answers God. I might write it once or twice from the material. But I will leave it out for the most part because to me it's not testing anything. That's what the quizzer is going to guess anyway. I want them to demonstrate that they know the verse that they are in and can quote it. Yes, you are absolutely correct. That, that, that you are absolutely right. That is exactly why I don't like it. Um, yes, indeed. So I definitely um, use a lot of my free reign and discretion as a question writer to not write a lot of very valid um reference questions because in my mind they're not testing anything because it's the same question and answer in multiple places and this one you know it might be awkward to like it is an awkward question when it was almost time for the jewish passover what but what i'm going to rely on is this is a test for the quizzer that has read the material and noticed that this one two three four five six seven eight nine word phrase appears exactly twice um and say hey I wonder if that's going to be the basis for a chapter reference question. And then they're going to get up, and they're going to jump on, according to John chapter 11, when it was, and they're going to say, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. And then they're going to pause. If they're prompted for their question, then they'll give something like, when it was almost time for what? Um, it's probably a question of that type, um, of that sort. But if the quizmaster doesn't prompt them for their question, they know they have to provide more material, then they'll go on and quote the rest of the verse, and then when prompted, they'll know to give this long, rare, nine-word reference question because they have prepared. And in that scenario, that's exactly the type of quizzer that I want to reward with 20 points for this question. Because yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it, it's giving them the ability to um, distance themselves or um, separate themselves from other quizzers who don't know this. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it may seem sometimes when we're asking very difficult questions and we're counting somebody wrong when they're close, but not quite there, it may seem like we're being overly harsh, but it's not so much that we're trying to be overly harsh to that particular quizzer in that particular answer, but rather be fair and just to the person who has put in the extra time and the extra preparation and does know the difference and can get the right answer uh, uh, for a question like this. And we want to, we want to reward that. So if we were, if we were being lax on a lot of this stuff, we would actually be harming the person who actually put in all of the extra effort to memorize. Absolutely. If I've got a reference question from verse one, a good, what man, and the same reference question from verse two, a good, what person and a quizzer mixes those up. I will probably call them wrong for being out of context in the other verse. Even though if this is an interrogative question, you're going to let the quizzer go, good man, good person. Um, it's not a big enough of a difference. But I think that the standard for context is different based on the type. And if it's a reference question, um, I'm totally going to deem you to have gone into a different verse if you if you mix those two up. And some people will call it too harsh to the quizzer that I called wrong. But to me, if I'm not, um, if I don't have that standard for context and being correct, then what you're actually doing is removing reward from the quizzer who does know the material and is precise in how they answer. Uh, it's not being harsh to the quizzer that doesn't know the material to the extent that someone else might. Yeah, absolutely. So those hit my two little miscellaneous questions. I love every quiz meet these little things come up, be it they be it on um, invalid questions or just less than good questions or awesome questions, but the scenario and the way the quizzer answered them or the ruling prompted discussion. And I have a lot of fun discussing these because I want to be a better quiz master. And I think it'll make people better quizzers and better coaches to just have discussions. I'd be curious. Well, should we move on? Absolutely. Funding Bible quizzing. Yes, I agree. We should do that. <laughs> We're already doing it. You want to explain some of our our recent thoughts? Well, I can give it a try. This is more sort of your uh, expertise level, but I can talk about a little bit of the cost involved with quizzing. It, it you know, as a quizzer or even as a coach uh, coming to some of the meets, uh, it can sometimes 
maybe look like, well, why can't we just volunteer everything? Why did, why did, why do things cost so much? You know, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of things that cost money and a lot of stuff that sort of factors into a quizzing program. There's things like the awards that we hand out, uh, the trophies, the plaques, the ribbons, uh, and so forth. Those all cost money. They don't cost a ton of money, but they do cost money and they add up over time. And, and part of that is, uh, Part of why we do that and go to the expense of, of having those kinds of awards is they're they're really nice motivators for people who put in the effort, uh, nice rewards for people who've been able to have a great meet and scored really well and that sort of thing. And, and we, we like to recognize folks that way. There's other costs, uh, costs involved uh, for a specific uh, team. Like if, if you are a quizzer and your coach is driving you places, there's going to be costs for gas. If you have to stay in a hotel, there are costs there. There's costs for the equipment that your that your team might practice on. So at a particular church, uh, a, a church might have to invest in a set of pads or something like that, a set of seats uh, and other sorts of equipment that that costs some money. Uh, it gone are the days where you have to buy materials. Uh, it used to be where you had to spend 20 bucks a year to buy color coded materials or black and white materials or so forth, uh, to write questions on. Now that's gone and CBQZ is here and CBQZ is free, but there's still all sorts of other sort of expenses that are related to that. And then certainly, at a host church, the host themselves have uh, a fair bit of, of uh, expense that goes into hosting. Uh, most of this is around uh, food for Saturday lunch, if the church is actually hosting lunch. Uh, but then there's other things and other sorts of expenses that get into it. And then we also, there there is a recognition that uh, being qualified to go, to go to Great West International uh, or Great West or Internationals are rewards for quizzers who have been able to achieve something rather extraordinary and rather wonderful. And we want to celebrate that. There's a significant cost around both Great West and internationals in terms of travel. You know, with internationals, it's usually uh, a plane fare, uh, plane tickets. Uh, with Great West, it's a road trip and gas and hotel is is significant uh, for those sorts of journeys. And so what we try to do at least in PNW, is take some of those costs for Great West and internationals and spread them out a little bit uh, across the entire district. And so to make it a little bit more of a reward for those uh, quizzers who qualify for Great West or internationals, uh, rather than something where they're going to be shackled with a fair amount of expense. Uh, they still have expense. You know, if, if, you, if you qualify for either one of those meets, there is a still there is still a fair bit of expense that is bur uh, burdened on the back of the uh, of the quizzer and can be picked up either by the coach or the the, the, the parents or, or the church or something like that. And there's also fundraisers and so forth that happen as well. But we try to spread some of that out across the district. Uh, everything else uh, is volunteer. So obviously officials don't get paid. Quiz there's, there's no such thing as a professional quiz master. There's no such thing as a professional quizzer or an answer judge. Everybody's a volunteer. Coaches are volunteers. Uh, the churches themselves, uh, I don't think ever get any kind of stipend other than just something to help out for uh, food, right? I mean, I, there isn't, we don't pay, or do we pay the church anything? to host the church gets an honorarium to host but it's not like it is supposed to cover some costs that they have um but it's it's more of a token thank you we're not assuming the churches um get to just pocket the entire amount but we also don't want a church to have to spend any money to host a meet so they charge five dollars a person for lunch if they provide it and then the honorarium covers other costs that they may have like if they provide snacks or other things like that yeah. And then, I mean, there's always going to be expenses even beyond that just for just turning the lights on, the electricity, water usage, all that kind of stuff. Um, there is going to be an incremental cost to hosting a meet there. And so it's kind of a nice way of, of saying thank you to the to the church for that. Totally. Do we want to talk about our idea? Yeah. Why don't you go uh, dive into it? So we have two fees. One is per individual that quizzes. And the other one is per team that participates, and that's per meet. And these amounts have actually, they've been the same since I came back to the program. So just about 10 years, they have not increased. It's pretty rare to not have a cost of something increase. So 
we definitely try to to not increase them unless we have to. And up to this point, we haven't had to, which is awesome because we we attempt to run at as lean as possible, where we take in as much money as we need to run the program and not not much more. We're starting to build up a little bit more now because it allows us to purchase equipment at the right time and when we need it. And it's also going to allow us to do some other fun things like smooth the cost of internationals so that it's not more expensive in years that there's a plane ride and less expensive in years where there's not. Uh, and it will also enable us to help out some some quizzers and families if um, – the cost of going to Great Western Internationals is a little bit of a burden, more of a burden for them than it would be for somebody else. We don't want to prevent anyone from participating for that reason. So um, having a little bit of a buffer will enable us to do that. Um, but we have those individual and then per team, per meet costs. And as we kind of, we had a few questions, and as we thought about it, we saw that if you have um, four-person teams, which is kind of the most common number of quizzers to a team, um, I don't know how to say this exactly, but you basically, if you have, on average, teams from your church with fewer than four on a team, then your average cost per quizzer is higher than churches where, on average, they have four quizzers on a team, um, which is more than if, than if a church had, on average, five quizzers on a team. And that's because the cost for a team is the same, no matter how many quizzers are on it. So obviously, if you stuff more quizzers on a team, um, then the cost per quizzer is going to be less. And we're like, well, we don't really want that to be the case because if you have, say, a small church that just has six kids, well, they have to make two teams, and their cost is going to be way more than if they had five quizzers and could have one team. Um, and so we we wanted to say, well, it doesn't really matter how many you have on a team, um, and so what we're, we're thinking of doing is making it just a per quizzer cost. So however many quizzers you have, um, there's one cost for quizzers, and then that will be the cost for your church for the year. Um, and then setting that cost for quizzers at roughly the, the amount that would give us the same amount of income as it does today when we're splitting up our fees between quizzers and teams. And so our aim would be that at the end of the day, we have the exact same num- same amount of money coming in because our cost structure is not changing. <laughs> but it would be simpler for churches. They would just say, oh, I have this many quizzers, and I know the fever quizzer, and that's it. Um, but it also um, doesn't change how much it's going to cost to that church based on how many quizzers are on each of their quiz teams. So it's just kind of a general simplification. Um, but the goal is at the end of the day to have a – a minimal to zero impact on any given church and no change to the amount of money that the district is taking in or PNW Bible quizzing is taking in. Yeah. Trying to make it more fair. And so that's just the thought. I don't think it's been discussed widely at all. And so that's the sort of thing that we discuss um, during leadership meetings each year, because while say the amount of money needed to run the program um, might have to be decided by say just the steering committee, um, a lot of the nuts and bolts, we want to make sure we have input and have considered all the possibilities because we want the program to be super beneficial, easy to understand for each of the churches because they're the, the the kind of the soul or heart participants of the program. Yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, a question that came in from our email address here. Awesome. So I'll read the question, Griffin, but I would love it if you answer it. So we got an, a nice question to our email, iq at cbqc.org. It was, how should I read the Bible apart from quizzing? I struggled spending so much time studying the specific books during the quizzing year that I neglected reading the Bible outside of my Bible quizzing time. Now, this was unsaid. Oh, so why might it be important to study why might it be important to study for Bible quizzing and also to read non-related scriptures as well? And this was unsaid by the quizzer, but you could kind of read between the lines. Like you're you're reading a specific book or books of the material to study, um, and as a result, you probably neglect reading those books just kind of as a meditation or um, as um, part of your spiritual life. But then also you neglect reading books that are unrelated to the quizzing at all. And so there's a lot of really interesting questions. Yeah, so there's several thoughts that kind of stream into my head all at once. The first one is 
the 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 biggest one, right? I, and I think probably if I only could make one point, it would be this: don't worry about it. Um, don't stress about it. I think it's admirable that you are looking that you're that you are introspective enough and noticing this about yourself and saying, well, is this a problem and should I do anything about it? And I think that's fantastic that you're aware of it. But if you did absolutely nothing about it, I I'm not sure that it's really all that bad because here's the thing: you're going to be in quizzing for only a few years, right? The, it it seems maybe like you know, five, six, seven years, it could be a very long time. Uh, but in the grand scheme of life, it, it's but a blink of an eye. Uh, you have so many years beyond quizzing to read uh, and study other uh, books of, of, of scripture, Old Testament, as well as New Testament. Uh, there's so many commentaries, so many theologies that you can, uh, histories and so forth that you can dive into. And you have so much time to be able to get into those things. So I'm not suggesting that you procrastinate on any of that because of course, procrastination will take, uh, a fairly small task and make it virtually insurmountable. So I'm not saying to ignore this sort of feeling that you have necessarily, but not, not stress out about it. Right. Um, Here's here, here's the unfortunate truth. You being a quizzer and studying to the level that you are the books that we have in the quizzing program, you are at a tremendous, tremendous advantage over the average Christian uh, in America today uh, or in Canada today. I, I don't mean it just to be the U.S. Obviously, this is an international program. Uh, there's... Certainly within both the U.S. and Canada, there are pockets of deep uh, Christian learning. But unfortunately, the culture in both countries has been slipping away from that. Uh, and I'm not I'm not talking like, you know, the last couple of years or something. I'm talking over the last hundred years or so. Uh, the culture has been shifting away from deep Christian learning. You will find that because of being involved in quizzing to the, the extent that you are, to come to the point of having this question, you will discover that you are uh, more knowledgeable about material to a, a significant degree than the average Christian. So I would encourage you in what you're doing with quizzing and encourage you not to worry about it. But that being said, there are some things that you can do. Very similar to in, in, when you're memorizing, you can memorize material both by, you know, just opening up a, a few a few verses, a chapter, reading it over and over again, trying to go for rote memorization, uh, trying to connect the, the verses together. There's things like snapping your fingers on unique words. There's the idea of, of speaking the words. Uh, while you're while you're memorizing them, there's the idea of taking the material on audio and listening to it as you're reading it or just as you're uh, commuting uh, to and from school or whatever. All of these things are different ways to approach the material. We talked about writing questions into the, into the material or out of the material. That's another way to approach it to deepen the extent of your your uh, awareness of the material. I think there are other ways to approach the material that don't work very well for quizzing, but are very beautiful, wonderful, wonderful ways, spiritually filling ways to get connected with the material in ways that are beautiful and spiritually uplifting outside of quizzing, right? So for example, if you're studying, so let's say we are studying Romans uh, one particular year. John tends to be fairly poetic. Uh, and very beautiful, uh, in that regard. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of shifting gears and saying, well, let's say we're, we're looking at Romans. Uh, Romans is a very powerful, incredibly important book of the New Testament, but I wouldn't call it especially poetic, uh, not in the same way that say, uh, John is. So let's say you're, you're halfway into Romans and you're just cranking on it and studying really hard and trying to bury all this stuff in your head. I think it's wonderful to just sort of pull open uh, one of the Psalms or a handful of Psalms and just read them purely for the enjoyment of the language, uh, purely for the enjoyment of, of the uh, sort of emotive spiritual expression that's going on in the Psalm. I would almost sort of speak the Psalm as though you are the Psalmist uh, saying these words to God as, as almost like a worship song that you are speaking to God. I mean, these were originally worship songs anyway. Um, that can be a wonderful thing. 
Uh, I think reading some of the Old Testament uh, stories can be almost uh, sort of this kind of shift. They're, they're different enough that you can get into the material just by enjoying the process of being surrounded by the richness of the material. There's also other things that you can do, uh, like as we're reading through, I mean, there are parts of John where if you're studying in a study Bible or if you're studying online, there's all kinds of uh, cross-references to Old Testament material and materials outside of John. You would never think to follow those cross-references in the preparation to for a quiz meet because, in fact, they could doing so might actually be well i don't know i i wouldn't say it's detrimental but it could definitely get confusing with the material that you need to have memorized for the quiz meet but if you're following a cross reference down into the old testament that can be a beautiful way of sort of adding depth and breadth to your experience with scripture that goes beyond just the material that you're you're reading here so the two things together number 1 don't stress out about it. Even if you never get to anything outside of the quizzing material during your years of quizzing, uh, I think you're still doing a wonderful, wonderful thing by being involved in, in quizzing. And you have, you know, many more years of your life where you're able to get to the, the, the rest of the beautiful material that we have from scripture. But there are other ways that you can dive into it, uh, especially just around uh, reading other parts like from the Old Testament or even just listening to the Old Testament stories on audio cassette can be a wonderful way of experiencing that. And certainly already you are, you are attending church on Sundays. You're going to be hearing passages read from other parts of the Bible. You're going to be hearing your, your pastor preach, uh, from other parts of the Bible. Hopefully your pastor is preaching from the Bible and not just, you know, making things up from, from the pulpit. But that sort of, experience is going to get you beyond the confines of, of quizzing. So I, I don't know. I, I hope I've answered the question there, but Scott, what are your thoughts? I don't have anything to add. I think those were great thoughts and I don't think there's this one right answer, but it's a useful thing to be aware of. And I'd say it's good to be thinking about. Very cool. Well, we are a little over time here, so we should probably close. Um, but I want to remind everybody, of course, that we very much would like to hear from you, and we would like to hear questions from you about anything. Uh, it would be great if they were quizzing-related, but they can be anything-related, Christianity-related, theology-related, life-related, whatever-related. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at InsideQuizzing. And I think that's it for episode 24. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. Happy listening, everybody, and happy studying. <laughs> <laughs>